I don't know if you've ever had uh, the joy, the privilege, the bittersweetness of being out on a retreat or going out on vacation, and the vacation is absolutely amazing. It's incredible, greatest time ever, and you get home to the hose that plugs into your washer machine. Those burst once every 10 years, they say. And it always happens while you're on vacation, right? Or sometimes the hose that connects your toilet to the water, that's what bursts. And you get home after an incredible vacation and you come home to a new indoor pool that you never wanted, right? Uh, There's a saying that we like to remind people here at church and it's called the bottom of the mountain rule. And as we go to different retreats, as some people got baptized in this season, as we go to different camps and we get these incredible mountaintop experiences with the Lord... It always seems that Satan is waiting there at the bottom of the mountain uh, to remind us what the real world is like and what he's after. And here there is no doubt here in Exodus 32 that is precisely what Moses will be facing. For us to be reminded of the context, Moses has spent the last 40 days in the presence of God. We know at the very least he's there in the mountains with the Lord. Uh, Perhaps, again, reading through Scripture, it could be that he's even called up into the throne room of heaven, being able to see the different pieces of furniture that are in there, whether physically brought up there or the Lord is just bringing a vision to him. But he has gone 40 days and nights without eating or drinking, and he has been completely sustained by the presence of God. Just an incredible time, incredible time with the Lord, right? Maybe you had an incredible honeymoon and then you got home to bills and a house that needs to be fixed and a sink that needs to be washed and all the stuff like that. That's what Moses is going to be facing here. We'll read verse 1, right? This is sort of back at the ranch, back at the house. Verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron... And they said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Again, Moses, he's there in the presence of God, enjoying the glory of God, seeing the tabernacle being built in front of his eyes so he can write it all down. And then back at the ranch, down at the face of the mountain, at the foot of the mountain, the people are growing impatient. They all come to Aaron. Aaron's the one that's left in charge. And they say, we don't know what happened to Moses, right? It's been 40 days he's been up there in the mountain. Pobrecito, he's viejito, right? He's 80-something years old, right? Maybe he tripped up on the mountain. Maybe he died. After all, we literally see a pillar of fire and smoke on the mountain. Maybe he got fried, right? Maybe he fell down. He didn't have his life alert. He stuck up there, right? Poor old Moses. That's what they're saying here. We don't know what happened to him. So now, Aaron, would you come and make us gods that shall go before us? Again, now they're losing their faith in the Lord, saying we know that God was able to take us out of Egypt, but perhaps he can't lead us into the promised land. So, hey, Aaron, won't you make us some gods for us? And sitting on this, chewing on this throughout this weekend, throughout this week, I came to a conclusion, a question, right? Is there any sin that is not born out of ingratitude and impatience? Any sin that we commit, that the root cause is not attributed to us either being ungrateful or not having enough patience, right? 
The third one may be the fear of man. We're just consumed with what people think of us. And I kid you not, we'll look at that in a moment. But so much sin, so many mistakes, so many problems that we bring upon our lives, it's from not being grateful for what the Lord has done for us. It's not being patient, waiting on the Lord. Lord, you've gotten me this far. God, of course, I'll wait on you, right? Notice what the people are focusing on. They're focused on, it's been 40 days, Moses still is not here, right? 40 days. How long was the nation of Israel in slavery to Egypt? 400 years, right? Forget about adding one zero. It's years, 400 years they've been in slavery, and now they can't wait more than 40 days for Moses to come back. Instead of being focused on Moses' delay, which he hasn't been delaying, they could be focused on their freedom, right? Thank God he freed us after 400 years, after generations being in slavery. They could be focused on their freedom plus the riches of Egypt. How God didn't just free them, a bunch of slaves with nothing in the wilderness, but they have the money, they have the sheep, they have the cattle from the Egyptians. God told them, hey, ask your old Egyptian overlords for money and wealth and cattle, and they gave them everything they have. They could be focused on their freedom plus the presence of God being seen and felt at the mountain right before them. Again, they're at the base of the mountain. They're at the foot of the mountain where there's fire and smoke, right? Earthquake being consumed. It's been 40 days since God's audible voice spoke to them and gave them the Ten Commandments. 40 days since God warned them and they were all shaking, trembling, saying, Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to talk to God, right? And 40 days afterwards, they're saying, hey, Aaron, can you make us some gods? If only the people would have been grateful and content in what they did have, right? According to scripture, we know that it rained bread that very morning. Manna was raining down from heaven that very morning, and yet they're saying, make us a God. Make us a God. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, and here we're going to sort of go down a little bit of a, a rabbit hole on focusing on impatience and ingratitude. And how can we defend this? If most sin comes from one of these two root causes, root problems in our lives, hopefully we here want to defend against that because we don't want to be given to sin. But there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, it tells us, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Again, Paul here, he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he's telling him, hey, you need to be godly and you need to be content. If you're godly and you're content, you have great gain, right? Great wealth for your life. And I know I'm probably the only one here who has a problem with complaining, right? Have a problem with complaining, a problem with contentment. Yet how much of my problems have to do with a lack of food, or a lack of clothing. 
how much of my complaints have to do because I don't have enough to eat or I don't have enough clothing to wear, right? I don't know about you guys, but I'll be honest. I am both overweight and I have a closet that's filled with clothes that I rarely wear, right? I know not you guys, but my wife, hey, can we get rid of this shirt from high school? No, 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 I need that, right? It's my favorite shirt. Honey, I can't fit another hanger in the closet. What are you talking about, right? I know none of you ladies here. Honey, can we clear out your closet? No, I wore that dress at a wedding 10 years ago. I'm going to fit in it one day. I'm going to fit in it one day, right? Can't get rid of it. Again, all of us, we have such a great wealth in excess, and yet we still find ourselves complaining that it has nothing to do with food and it has nothing to do with clothing. We can turn to Philippians chapter 4, and I love this scripture, but I love the true context of it even more. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, right? A portion of scripture we see on mixed martial artists and people who love to work out and lift weights. But the true context of Philippians 4, 13, there in verse 11, we see Paul here. And he tells us, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. And I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What Paul shows us here is that there's a learning curve that each of us must grow in. And it's in learning to be content with much and with little. In the midst of suffering and the midst of abounding and having too much that we know what to do with. We need to grow in being content. And in Christ Jesus, we can do it. We can learn to be content with much and with little. We can grow into this contentment, being happy with what the Lord has given us. Again, we have more blessing than ever before within the United States of America. And yet anxiety, fear, depression, so many problems rising up with so much blessing. Right? So many ulcers and stomach problems, right? So many gray hairs on things that God will give to us in his due time if we need it. Right? How about impatience, right? Anyone here struggle with being impatient? Right? Me, a handful of us, right? A handful of us that are honest, right? I struggle with impatience. And every day I get on the road, I am reminded that I struggle with impatience, right? Amanda warns me, you can't talk like that every time about the drivers in front of the kids. They're going to think all of Miami drives like this, right? Honey, all of Miami does drive like this, right? <laughs> Maybe it's because I prayed for patience, so now the Lord brings me all those drivers there to work on my patience, but... I struggle with impatience, right? You're there and you look at all the aisles in Publix and you find the shortest one and you get there. And right when you get there, the person in front of you pulls out a check, right? You haven't seen a check in five years and all of a sudden they pull out a check, right? Then they got to go to the manager. They need a price check. They need this. And you're pulling your hair out. You're seeing all the other people zooming through the lines and you're saying, what's going on, right? Have any of us looked back on a decision in life and grateful that we dealt with it in a season of being impatient, right? I'm so grateful I made that decision and I was impatient and I was just impulsive, right? Just so happy, so grateful. I bought that car and two months later it was half the price. I'm just so thankful about that, right? So grateful. I went, I splurged on that TV on Black Friday and a month later it was half the price. So happy with that season of impatience. 
And being impatient, it's costly. Not just in buying something that gets cheaper later on, but usually lack of patience, lack of contentment leads to sin. You see, if I'm honest, when I'm impatient, it doesn't lead me to pray more. It doesn't lead me to fast more. I don't find myself praising Jesus in the midst of my impatience. I find myself making rash decisions in the midst of my impatience. You can write down 1 Samuel 13, rattle off a couple of examples within God's word. And there in 1 Samuel 13, Saul was given the task from Samuel to wait seven days. He told him, hey, wait seven days and I'll come and I'll offer the sacrifice and then we can go to war. It seems like Saul had seven days to the exact minute and second. And the second that seven days hit, he had no more patience. And now Saul decided to offer the sacrifice himself, something he knew he had no business doing. And it cost him really everything. It cost him the blessing of having a dynasty, a lineage there on the throne of Israel. In 1 Samuel 13 verse 14, Samuel tells Saul, he says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. And now the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Right? Oftentimes we grow impatient. So now we say something mean to our spouse. We're impatient so we explode on our kids. We're impatient and we say mean things. We become sarcastic. We become crude. We become harsh. We jump into sin. We lie. We try to cut corners because of our impatience. And people say dumb things when they're impatient, right? I don't know if you've ever been there. You're like impatient on a diet, so you just give up and you eat a bunch of cookies. It makes no sense, right? You're doing the exact opposite of what you're bad. It's not happening. Uh, You could think of Abraham and Sarah. They couldn't wait any longer for God to provide a son for them. So in Genesis 16 verse 2, Sarah tells her husband, Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Right? Honey, I can't have any kids. So why don't you have sex with my coworker and we'll have some kids through her. Right? It's madness. How about Esau? Esau was too hungry and he couldn't wait any longer to eat. So he was willing to give up his birthright, his inheritance. Genesis 25 verse 32, he tells his brother, look, I'm about to die. What does this birthright mean to me, right? Imagine having a huge inheritance left for you by your parents or your grandparents, that rich aunt or uncle that we wish we had, right? And all of a sudden you're with a family member saying, man, just give me that Big Mac. You could have my inheritance, I don't even care, I'm going to die of starvation, right? It's insanity. You think of Martha and Mary, right? Martha couldn't wait anymore for Mary to help her with the dishes in the kitchen. So she literally tells Jesus in Luke chapter 10 verse 40, Lord, do you even care? Right? None of us ever tell that to Jesus, right? The Son of God, the Creator of heaven and earth, the one who humbled himself and came down to heaven, lived the perfect life and died for us. We never tell them, do you even care about me? Do you even care what I'm going through? Do you even realize what's going on? And we can say ridiculous things when we're in a season of being impatient. Finally, uh, James and John, some of our favorite disciples, they couldn't wait for another place to stay. They couldn't wait to have to go to another city for people to hear from Jesus. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, they turn to Jesus and they say, Lord, 
Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, right? Lord, there's no room at this Hilton. Do you want me to pray fire from heaven to consume all the workers and the people staying here? It's madness. But this is what happens when we are not patient, when we're not trusting in the Lord. So usually what leads us to being impatient? Lack of gratitude, lack of contentment, and lack of focus on Jesus. Those are the things that just breed impatience in our lives. Lack of gratitude, being grateful for all that God has done for us, how God has placed us here, he's been forgiving and loving and kind. Lack of contentment, all the goodness we have around us compared to the rest of our nation, compared to the rest of the world. And lack of a focus on Jesus Christ, all his suffering, everything he went through to save us. And now we think, I deserve better. A couple scriptures for us to be reminded of people who just grew impatient. You can write down Psalm 106, verse 13 and 14. There the psalmist talking about the nation of Israel here in Exodus. He says, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. We soon forget the work of God in our lives and in our family and in the people around us. We soon forget the miracles that God has done in our lives and all of a sudden we think, God, let me help you out, right? Lord, let me just help you in this thing. I'm going to die. I, I can't take it anymore. Let me help you. The nation of Israel, they have just seen the ten plagues on the nation of Egypt. They've seen Egypt in complete darkness and the land of Goshen where they're living have light the day. They've been able to be blessed with God telling them, Hey, judgment is coming. Kill a lamb. Sacrifice it. Put blood on the door and you'll be saved and your family. They've forgotten about all of it. They've forgotten about the bread raining down from heaven that morning. The quail coming down onto the earth just for them. They didn't wait for his counsel, right? Asking God, hey, is this the one? Is that the girl? Should I talk to them? Ah, Lord, you haven't answered me. I'm just going to go for it, right? I want to do this impulsive buy, and it's been five minutes. You haven't spoken to me. So, Lord, I'm just going to buy this thing. I'm just going to do this thing, right? Not waiting for his counsel. Verse 14 warns us, but they lusted exceedingly. What are you feeding on? Because if you're just feeding on what's out there in the world, right, the commercials, Every new car, social media, what everybody else has or the best that everybody else has. You're just lusting and lusting and lusting instead of being content in God's word. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 30. And in Isaiah chapter 30, we get uh, just a great portion of scripture. A warning that reveals to us people who lost patience and fell into sin. And then God's medicine, God's counsel how we can fix our impatience, and then God's character dealing with our impatience. So there in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1 and 2, again, very similar to Psalm 106, it tells us, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Again, a warning to us, family. Who are we taking counsel from? Sometimes we get frustrated because God's not speaking to us. So we just go to everyone and anyone else. 
Or if we're really honest, we just go to whoever tells us what we've been looking to hear, right? But we're desiring to hear. Someone to tell us it's okay, right? Or what someone's was doing really is terrible and you're right. The warning there, making plans, but they're not of the Lord. They're not of His Spirit. We haven't asked His advice, strengthening ourselves in the strength of this world and this world's systems. Later on, we'll see the warning to not trust in man. This is what happens when we're impatient. There in verse 3, Therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. Again, when all of our trust is in the things of this world, sooner or later we're brought to shame, right? We're brought to shame. It's funny, some people are like really excited about the stock market. You can tell when they're doing well, and you can tell when they're not doing so well, right? When they're talking about it and they're happy, yeah, they're doing well. When you haven't heard about how well they've been doing for a while, they're not doing that great, right? Got to be praying for them. And this thing that was once their strength, their hope, their glory, now is kind of like their humiliation. They don't want their wife asking them about it, right? How's it going, honey? They don't want to hear that anymore. Verse 15, how do we fix this impatience within us? Verse 15, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength, the nation of Israel, but you would not. Hopefully we will heed to this advice. We need to return to the Lord and rest in Him. Again, we'll look at it in a moment. Spending time in God's Word to have that quietness and that our confidence in the Lord, in His plans, in His strength, that would be our strength. We trust in Him. He's provided. He's always provided. He's saved us. He's the one that reached out to us before we reached out to Him. He's got it. He's got it under control. Then in verse 18, we see His character. Therefore, the Lord will wait that He may be gracious to you. And therefore, He will be exalted that He may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. You see, the glorious thing about the Lord is he's not impatient with our impatience. He still remains patient, still remains long-suffering. He still remains kind and merciful and gracious. So even if we've been here and we've been impatient and we've fallen into sin because of our impatience, he's waiting. He's waiting for us to return to him, to rest in him, to have that quietness and that confidence in him and him alone. The most practical way to wait on the Lord It's found in Psalm 130, verse 5. David writes, I will wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. So instead of lusting out, looking at all the things the world has, spend time looking into the word, waiting on the Lord. That's where you find patience. That's where you find strength. We mentioned that at the 9 a.m., and it's worth bearing mention that, again, children, they don't do very well with contentment and gratitude. And they don't do very well with patience, right? Kids, they never complain. Just, just my kids, right? Your kids are great, right? They don't have to pay a mortgage. They don't have to pay rent. They don't have to watch the news. They don't have to do any of these things, right? And yet they complain, right? They cry. They whine. They this, that, that. That's what happens when you're immature. How about being impatient, right? The worst word to tell a five-year-old is, hey, we have to wait, right? They don't know how to handle it, right? They start, like, tweaking. They start freaking out, right? Some parents just throw an electronic device at them and run away, hoping that that sort of captures their attention, right? And they don't do well with waiting. Family, we as believers 
a true measure of our growth or maturity, it's attributed to how grateful we are and how patient we can be. It really shows if you're maturing in the Lord or if you're still in your younger years in your maturity with God. David Guzik, he says, how we handle God's ordained delays is a good measure of our spiritual maturity. If we allow such delays to make us drift into sin or lapse into resignation to fate, then we react poorly to his ordained delays. If we allow such times to deepen our perseverance and following God, then they are of good use. You see, life is filled with waiting. Life is filled with delays. Life is filled with testing our patience. But do we allow those ordained delays to cause us to press into the Lord all the more? Or do we use those ordained delays as an excuse to go back to our former gods, right? Sometimes we use those ordained delays and we say, you know what? I'm going to go back to, like the nation of Israel, go back to our former idols. God's not doing anything. God's not talking to me. So I'm going back to the bottle. I'm going back to the drugs. I'm going back to that relationship. I'm going back to the pornography. I'm going back to the gossip. This is what I've known. This is what fulfills me, right? We need to allow those ordained delays to press into the Lord all the more. A couple scriptures just rattle them off to you. Promises that we should hold to our hearts when it comes to waiting on the Lord. Isaiah 49 verse 23. It promises us, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Isaiah 49 verse 23. Isaiah 64 verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. What a position of strength. That if we wait on God, he's going to act on our behalf. What a place of strength. Isaiah 64 verse 4. Finally, probably the most famous one. Isaiah 40 verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Again, if we wait on the Lord, are waiting our patience in God, you're going to strengthen. You're going to be renewed. Again, family, may we stay patient. Wait on the Lord. Don't make the mistakes of the Israelites. I, uh, Paul, he writes to the church in Galatia. He writes to the Galatians the same mistake. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? What got you to this point? It was the Lord and his grace and his mercy. It was being in God's word day by day. Are you not all of a sudden going to make this perfect and complete by the flesh? By sin? By your ideas? By your devices? Wait on the Lord. We go back to Exodus 32 verse 2. Now we see Aaron's response. And as a good leader, you need to learn how to be able to respond to bad advice. Uh, Aaron, in verse 2, he says, Okay, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people, they broke off their golden earrings which were in their ears, and they now bring them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is terrible. This is terrible leadership, right? Aaron, what he should have done, right? What he did not do is he should have pointed them back to the Lord. Guys, who made bread rain from heaven this morning, right? 
Who's going to make bread rain from heaven tomorrow morning? That, that mountain over there that's trembling, that smoke, that fire you see, do you remember who that is? What are you talking about? Aaron, he didn't remind them of the great miracles of the Lord. Guys, do you not remember the locusts? You don't remember the frogs? You don't remember looking at the Nile completely turned into blood? You're going to ask me to make you a god? Right? He didn't even remind them of Moses' patience or Moses' work for them. And Moses was his little brother. Come on, guys. My little brother, he's been working as hard as he can for you guys. But what is he? Those 80 years old? Give him a break. Relax. Calm down. He's given all his heart for you guys. Instead, Aaron allowed himself to be swayed by the people. And we as believers, we shouldn't be swayed by the people. Unless it's a bunch of biblical counsel, right? Which it tends to be the people that we're most resistant towards. It's the people that give us a bunch of biblical counsel, right? But we should not allow ourselves to be swayed by man. Especially if we're in a position of leadership. Psalm 118 verse 8, it tells us it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in in man. Proverbs 29 verse 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So again, ingratitude, impatience, and the fear of man, it'll choke you out. It will rip you off spiritually in every way, shape, and form. If you're living your life based on, man, what are people going to think? What are people going to say? What are people going to do? You're just getting a noose and you're tightening it and tightening it each and every time. You're making your decisions based on the fear of people instead of the fear of God. Aaron, he was swayed by the public. He was swayed by what was popular. The whole group of people came to him and said, this is what we want. But as a believer, our fear of God must be greater than our fear of men. It has to be. At the end of the day, we have to stand before the Lord. And all throughout Scripture, you see the one person standing against a multitude. And what we're going to see is Aaron unwilling to stand against a bunch of normal, okay people. Later on, Moses is going to come down the mountain and have to stand up against a group of a bunch of drunk people. And yet Moses is still willing to stand in front of them and stand for the Lord. So again, for us, if we're in leadership, stand for the Lord. I don't know, right? I know we have a lot of teachers here. How many of you teachers here, you ask the students, what do you guys want to do today, right? I'll tell you what I would have said. Oh, PE day, movie day, chill day, right? Play games, right? They probably give us A's, right? That's a great day today, right? You don't ask them what they want to do. Again, for us as parents, are we asking our kids what they want to do with life? Right? Do you want to go to church today? Ah, oh, it's okay. Do you want to go to youth today? Ah, oh, it's okay. Do you want to eat vegetables today? It's okay. You want to go to the doctor today? It's okay. You want to drop out of high school? Ah, that's okay, right? We need to be the parents. Hopefully you are more filled with the Spirit and know what they need more than they do. That's what it's called to be a leader. We need to have that tough skin. We can't just be consumed with what people think. Verse 5 and 6, so Aaron, he builds this golden calf. They probably, it's probably wood overlaid with gold. Now he builds an altar before it. Aaron, now he makes a proclamation. And he says, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings. The people sit down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. And from the outside, if we're honest, this looks like an incredible church. An incredible worship service, 
First, they had an offering, and people literally gave gold, right? Imagine if we had an offering here, and people were dropping down golden coins in the offering, right? Giving all their Bitcoin out into the right, electronic offering, whatever. I don't even know how to go there, right? But yeah, right? It'd be incredible. Say, wow, what a giving church. They love the work of the Lord. They even had an altar while they're willing to sacrifice. They proclaimed a feast to the Lord. That word Lord there, it's capitalized because Aaron is literally saying, tomorrow we're going to make a feast for Jehovah. We're going to make a feast for Yahweh. They're offering burnt offerings. They're feasting with the Lord. They're offering peace offerings. Later on, we're seeing that they're singing loudly. Their worship service was jamming. And yet it had nothing to do with the one true God. We have to be careful with our own lives and the people around us that we're just looking at what they're doing in form of religion or worship and say, oh, they have a, such a great walk with the Lord. It's based on the heart and it's based on obedience to the Lord, which is obedience to his word. That's how you can really measure if you love the Lord, right? Jesus tells his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And there's a progression that's happening here, right? First, there's impatience. Moses is delayed. What are we going to do, right? Then there's unbelief. We don't know what's happened to him. Maybe he died up there on the mountain. Then they ask for an idol. They jump into idolatry. Make us gods that will lead us into the promised land. And finally, it always leads to immorality. It led to rising up to play. And it's speaking of them rising up to play. It's not talking about them going to play volleyball or baseball or anything else like that. This is a very tasteful way to say they rose up and they had a drunken orgy. That's what the nation of Israel jumped into 40 days after hearing the voice of God. After hearing God tell them the Ten Commandments. And all of a sudden this nation of Israel, they are acting like a bunch of Egyptians. That's what they're looking like. 40 days ago, God spoke to them from the mountain. All the work, all the miracles, manna rained down from heaven. Their leaders out on the mountain speaking with God because they were too fearful to do so. And just the progression. And family, that's what sin does to us. That's what the devil desires for each and every one of our lives. You see, the devil, he doesn't just desire to make our life a little less holy or a little less good. But he's looking to steal and kill and destroy. I don't know how many of you watch National Geographic, or a bunch of toddlers, kids, so they love animals, right? But when the lion's chasing after the prey, he's not like, ah, let me just get a little bite, right? Let me just get one little bite of your leg. I'll let you go. I'll stitch it up, and I'll send you on your way, right? He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. He wants to consume the whole thing. Let's turn quickly to Romans chapter 1, and here we see another progression, Same type of progression that happened here with the nation of Israel. I believe this is the progression that we've seen within our own country. And this is the progression for each and every one of us. If we grow impatient, if we begin to live a life of unbelief, not believing in God, not being faithful to God, we will begin to create other gods for us. We're going to allow other people to make our morals. We're going to follow other people in the way we should live our lives. And it always leads to immorality. Romans chapter 1. Just going to read through this. Chapter 1 verse 18. It tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by all things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen for this reason god gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due and even as they did not like to retain god in their knowledge God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Again, family, this is the progression. Maybe this has been the progression in your life. There's a season in my life where this was my progression. Denying God, denying God, denying God, given over, right? And then there's no stopping there. The joy, the blessing for us who are here and everyone who's still alive is that our God is not impatient with our impatience. He's still gracious to us. He's still merciful to us, kind towards us. He's willing that no one would perish. We shouldn't just stay in our sin, right? Hopefully no husband or no wife here says, you know what, they're going to forgive me. So I'm going to just keep up in this adulterous relationship. Right? Hopefully that's not what you want your spouse or your dad or mom saying. So hopefully that should not be our heart. We should be blown away that today, this morning, God is still gracious. God is still wanting to welcome you home. God is still wanting to forgive you. God is still wanting to cleanse our minds and our hearts from all that he's done for us. So again, that's just the progression of sin. We begin to lose patience with God, then we begin to, man, is he even real? Is he even out there? Is his word true? Is it this? Is it that? It can't be this. Then we begin to take on our own idols, our own gods. Oh, this person's right. I'm going to lead my morals based on what that person says. And it always leads to immorality. We go back to Exodus chapter 32, and we keep going. Verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, 
for your people, right? Some of the parents here, maybe you have PTSD from your parents. You remember these words, right? For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves, right? It's always interesting to me. Your son or daughter, my son or daughter does great out on the baseball field. SMA hijo, right? But if you get home and your child behaved terribly, what happens when your spouse gets home? Do you know what your son did today? <laughs> right? And that's sort of what God is doing here with Moses, right? Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. Go get down there. Go get them. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and they worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and indeed it is a stiff necked people now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and i may consume them and i will make of you a great nation again the lord is doing a couple things here first and foremost the lord is showing that he hates sin he hates sin there's no doubt about that in all of scripture god hates sin so he's showing moses his anger his indignation and what these people have done Imagine you've done all the heavy lifting in saving someone, freeing someone, paying off their house, and now all of a sudden they make a little golden baby cow, and they say, oh, thank you, golden baby cow, right? I think you'd be pretty ticked off too. So he does all this, and now he's going to begin to test Moses' heart. He says, hey, Moses, just leave me alone right now. Leave me alone. My wrath is going to burn hot against them. I'm going to consume them. You'll be able to look down from the top of the mountain. Look down, you'll see puff of smoke, right? We'll just fry them all. And then we'll start all over again, right? We'll start from you, Moses, and we'll make a great nation. We'll start with a new city. We'll call it Motown. And we'll start from there. And we'll start all over with just you, Moses, right? And if, if I'm honest, I say, that's a pretty great idea, God, right? I'm a pretty great guy. I've done enough work. These people have been impatient. They've been murmuring, complaining the whole time. I can't take another day in the wilderness with them. Let's do it, right? But look at the heart of Moses, the shepherd he's becoming, the heart of God, the heart of Christ that he has in verse 11. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God. And he said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Right? He sort of gives them back to God, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them? to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servant to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. You see, a good leader is all about the Lord. A bad leader is all about himself. Moses, he puts it all back into God's court. It's all about God. He says, Lord, this is your people. God, you're the ones that's done the work. I, I haven't brought them out of Egypt. Lord, it's been you. It's been your miracles. It's been your strength. God, what about your reputation? If you fry them all here, the Egyptians are going to say, why, he couldn't save them? He couldn't just kill them in Egypt. He had to take them out into the wilderness to do it. And Lord, what about your promises, right? That's what we should be consumed with as believers, not what people are doing to us. 
Not our right, and that's where we get in trouble. My works, what I have done, all my hard work, my reputation, my promises, they're complaining against me. Where what we should be consumed with is, Lord, how does this affect you and your work? Lord, how does this affect your reputation? Lord, how does this affect your promises? And again, it's sweet because he says, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Again, even Moses, he's defining Jacob on his new name given to him by God, which is Israel. And we look through these, the life of these three men, and I don't know if any of us came away with this saying, oh yeah, Abraham's my favorite Bible character, right? Isaac's my favorite Bible character. Ooh, Jacob, I love him, right? As we talked about, I don't think we'll ever have a couple's retreat where we look at the sweet marriage of Abraham and Sarah, right? Or at least none of the wives will come if we have one like that, right? It's all about, in spite of how dumb Abraham was, ladies, be kind and love and respect their husbands, right? In spite of Jacob and his trickery and his cunningness, God's grace allowed him to become Israel. Moses is reminding God, in a sense, God, it is your promise that kept these men attached to your name and to your power. Had nothing to do with what they did or their strength. God, it is all you and your grace and your power. Verse 14, I believe the Lord happy seeing the heart of Moses, the heart of Christ in Moses. He says, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Maybe your Bible version says the Lord repented. Not the case here. God's not saying he's sorry. God is simply changing his mind here. God's saying, hey, I said I was going to fry them. I'm not going to fry them anymore. We'll show grace and mercy here. Verse 15 and 16, Moses turns. He goes down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other side they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God's engraved on the tablets, right? Talk about the most expensive autograph ever, right? Uh, I know basketball cards are starting to get expensive and pretty popular again. But imagine having a signed copy of God, right? God's card here, right? How expensive, how costly this must be. Verse 17, Joshua, he hears the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Joshua, he's the warrior. Everything to him sounds like gunfire and war, right? And now we're about to go into verse 19 through 21. And I don't know if you've ever been there when you're told a piece of news and you're just like told it and you're able to take it like calmly and relaxed. But then you show up to the scene and you finally see what they're talking about and you can't help but get angry and enraged, right? Maybe some of your parents are like, hey, right, once again, your son did this, right? They drew all over your room and you're like, okay, I'll deal with it when I get home. And you get home and you see it, right, and you start going off, you start tweaking. That's basically what happens here with Moses. Verse 19, so it was as soon as he came near the camp, he's walking down the mountain little by little, he sees the calf. He sees the dancing, right? A drunk orgy, a bunch of naked people dancing before this golden cow. So Moses' anger became hot. And he cast the tablets out of his hand and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. It seems like Moses has an anger problem. We see he got angry when the Egyptian was hurting the Israeli slave and he kills the Egyptian. Here he gets angry and he breaks the Ten Commandments. First and only man to break all Ten Commandments at once. Ladies, you're blessed. Right? Don't worry, your husband's better than that. Um, 
And uh, later on, we'll see he gets angry at the people. And he starts bashing Aaron's rod against the rock, right? All the almonds, all the flowers flying everywhere. And he's just bashing it against the rock. Again, it's incredible because God's word says that Moses was the meekest man ever. And this is, again, the power of God in our lives. You have an anger management problem? Hey, join Moses. Join the club. But bring that under the power of Christ. Allow the Lord to deal with you. And Moses still has to deal with consequences later on because of his anger. So he gets mad. He breaks all the Ten Commandments, right? This is sort of when the party ends. The record scratches. Everybody starts running. Verse 20. He took the calf which they had made. He burns it in the fire. He now grinds it to powder. He scatters it on the water, and now he made the children of Israel drink it. I talk about washing your mouth after you said a bad word. He gets the golden powder, grinds it down, makes them drink, right? They're thinking of the consequences for a couple days afterwards of worshiping the golden calf. Verse 21, Moses says to Aaron, come on, bro. Come on, big bro. What did these people do that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Did they shackle you? Did they get your wife? Did they put a dagger by her head? How did they get you to do this? How did they get you to do this great sin? Verse 22, so Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people. Come on, Moses, you know the people. You know that they're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. They gave me their gold. I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. It's literally what he tells his brother, right? I don't know if you've ever been told such a lame excuse that you just sort of shake your head and you can't even respond to them after they've told you what, what has happened, what has transpired, right? And just our terrible excuses when it comes to sin, right? Hey, how did you do this? Oh, it just happened, right? No, there was a progression there as we've gone through. There was a progression in your heart. You were impatient. You were unfaithful, unbelieving. You collected other gods, other morals, and it led to immorality. Verse 25, now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Apparently there are people that even though Moses has broken the Ten Commandments, he's had enough time to take the calf, throw it in the fire, melt it down, dry it up, grind it to powder, have them drink. There are people still ongoing in this sexual sin, still naked in their sin. And in Judges 17, verse 6, we see this. It tells us, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a dangerous thing, family, and you, we will run into people like that, who are in sin and unrepentant in their sin. They're not going to change. You give them the truth, you give them God's word, you give them God's word, but they do not want to change. We need to be biblical like we're about to see and God's word tells us to cut them off, to not have them in your life any longer. No matter who they are, no matter how they're related to you, you need to cut them off. Verse 26, Moses now stands in the entrance of the camp. And now he says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, thus says, so this isn't Moses' anger. He says, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Let every man put a sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. 
So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Again, it didn't matter. He warned them. He said, hey, your brother, your companion, your neighbor, if they are in unrepentant sin after everything that's happened, you got to kill them. And now for us, it's not that biblical mandate. For us, it's to cut them out of our lives, to not break bread with them, to not fellowship with them anymore, even if they are brother or companion or neighbor. As Levites, right? As the priests, we've been looking at that in First Peter. We've been looking at that the past few weeks, that we as believers, we are the priests of God. So a part of being a priest is bearing that sword, Knowing God's word, and if there are people in our lives, especially believers, you can go all through First and Second Corinthians, especially believers who are in unrepentant sin, got to cut them off. That's the biblical mandate. One of the hardest things, one of the most gut-wrenching things in church leadership that believes in going through God's word is there's people that are coming to church, and they want to be in sin and not repent. They don't want to change their mind. You love them, you care for them, you bring them in. Say, hey, if you're dealing with this, that's fine, but you're spreading it. I'd imagine someone today in a COVID ward, unwilling to wear a mask and wanting to run around the whole hospital, right? Coughing on people, sneezing on people. I think at this point it's an offense. You get to jail if you do something like that. And there's people that they'll come to church. They'll say, hey, I know what I have is in, but I don't want to change it. And I want to talk to everybody else about it. And as a group of Levites, as people that believe in God's word, we don't stand for that. We have that church discipline. Thank God it's not every day. Thank God it's every once in a while, so every few years. But we'll do that because it's biblical. But we as believers in our own lives should be doing that. Shouldn't just be calling, hey, Zach, uh, I got this friend. Uh, Let me put him on the phone for you, right? No, we as believers, we need to be handling that. How Jesus, right, one of those hard portions of scriptures, Jesus says, you think I've come to bring peace? I've come to bring a sword, to put mom against daughter, son against father. I've come to bring a sword down the middle of those people who are really loving me with all their whole heart, soul, mind, spirit, and strength, and the rest of mankind. And now when we do these things, verse 29, it says, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. The act of these men being willing to be set apart from God made them consecrated, made them holy. And now that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. Again, it's heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching, but God promises you a blessing when you do it. And I've been around long enough to see God, either he'll do a mighty work that because of your stance on sin, that person sooner or later will come to the Lord. And those are the best. That's the greatest testimonies. Or the Lord, through the church and family of God, will bring you another brother that's closer than yours. Or another mom or another dad or that grandson or granddaughter. The Lord will restore. The Lord will bless. The question for us is, will we be holy? Will we be obedient to him? Will we be those when Moses stands up and says, who's on the Lord's side? That we would run to the entrance saying, Lord, I'm on your side. And again, it's incredible because the Levites and this act of bravery and obedience to the Lord, I believe, is now what gives them the blessing of being the chosen people within the chosen people of God. 
Before God had the priesthood, every firstborn son of every family in Israel, they'd give their firstborn son, and that would be the priesthood. But because of the stance against sin that these Levites had, because they probably did not partake in what happened, now God says, you know what? You're going to be my chosen people. You don't have property. You don't have food. You don't have clothes. I'm going to provide for you. So then we continue verse 30. Comes to pass, right? That's a rough day, a rough night. Comes to pass on the next day, Moses, he says to the people, you've committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Here we see the true heart of Moses, which is the true heart of a shepherd. You can write down John chapter 10, verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. You want to join in ministry? You want to start serving? It's not so you can get more popular or sell your insurance. That's not where you get into ministry. You get into ministry because you want to give your life for God and for God's people. Paul, he had a similar heart for all the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 5, you could read it when you get home. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. What Moses is saying here, what Paul was saying is, Lord, if I could spend eternity in hell and the rest of my brothers and sisters spend eternity with you, Lord, take my life. And again, that is a great amount of love. And I love Calvary Chapel, Miami. I love each and every one of you. I haven't prayed this prayer yet, right? I don't know how many of you have prayed this prayer for people that you love. I love uh, Sandy Adams. He goes, hey, I'm not willing to spend eternity in the smoking section just so you guys can be in heaven, right? And again, that is true love. And this is a love that we should ascribe to have, right? Hope that one day we could have. But for us, God doesn't want us to give our life for hell so other people can go to heaven. Jesus Christ did that on the cross, suffering the shame, being separated from God, suffering the pain. All God desires from us is to just pray for them, to love on them, to show the love of God on them, to give them a hug, to give them a stern word when they need that, to pay for their lunch, to go across the street and talk to your neighbor and actually find out what their name is, right? To be able to share the gospel. That's what the Lord desires, not that we'd be sacrificially sending ourselves to hell. God's just saying, hey, do you love the unbeliever? Do you love them enough to share with them, to donate to the mission trip, to treat someone out to lunch? Do we have a love for the lost? Are we going out to the one lost one and leaving the 99 at home? Finally, verse 33 through 35, the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. This will lead right into chapter 33 and 34. Uh, but here, one last thing to note is there's still consequences for our sin. God's saying, I love them. I want to show them grace. I want to show them mercy. Okay, Moses, I'm not going to fry them all. Okay, Moses, I'm going to still lead you to the promised land, but I'm still going to lead my punishment because of their sins. So if you're here and maybe you're still reaping your sin, you're still reaping what you've sown, that's going to be for a season. But as you start sowing the things of God and the love of God and the service of God, 
Maybe you have a bad relationship, a bad marriage, a bad relationship with your kids, and you've just been sowing garbage all these years. Don't think it's going to change overnight. Start sowing in God's word. Start sowing in God's love. And over time, you'll start to reap that. And again, for us, are we going through a season of ingratitude? Are you going through a season where you're growing impatient and you're about to jump into sin? Maybe you perhaps you already jumped into sin and now you need to just come. You got to confess again. Thank the Lord that he's not impatient with our impatience. He's long-suffering. He's gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. Maybe you're here and the Lord just busted you that when it comes to unbelievers, we're more like James and John, right? Lord, can you bring that fire and just consume them, right? That we'd have the heart of Moses, that we'd have the heart of Christ going out for that lost one.